This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Mril Ingram, author of Loving Orphaned Space, The Art and Science of Belonging to Earth, published this year by Temple University Press. Dr. Ingram, welcome to the show. Thank you, Stentor. I'm really happy to be here. Okay, so to start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Sure. So I'm a geographer by training um, and have also spent a lot of my professional life in the publishing and communications world with a focus on science communication and the role of science in society. Um, I've edited journals, including Ecological Restoration and the website for the Progressive magazine, um, and run public information campaigns related to science and scientific research. And across both the academic work and also my, my work with these organizations, I've really thought a lot about public understanding and interaction with science, the science policy interface, participatory research. Um, I was thinking about this question and remembering how excited I was when I first heard of John Gaventa's work with the Highlander Center. And this was back in the, I think, late 80s or 90s. Um, But that work that um, he helped champion that was so much about a kind of science for the people model and the notion of empowering people with scientific research um, to help groups kind of self-organize around ways of knowing that help them solve their own problems. Um, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm actually currently participatory action research scientist. I uh, work with some, a collaborative effort around promoting more diverse and sustainable agricultural systems in Wisconsin. Um, and my, my research, as I've tried to explore science and society with a focus on the environment, I should also say, looked at things like pathogens and wolves and compost and organic regulations. Um, and I think the other thing I, I should say is that I'm really very much a network scholar and that if it weren't for encountering Bruno Latour's work, I probably never would have returned to graduate school after my master's degree. Um, but his actor network theory, which I think, um, I'm not even sure he would describe it as a theory. And even then I was more thinking of it as a kind of approach, but 
that it really spoke to me then as I was struggling to make sense of questions about science and society and, you know, relationships and how that really shapes what we know and how we know it. Um, And then particularly when I got to graduate school and started to read Bruna Latour's work in the company of people like Susan Lee Starr and some of the other science and technology studies work um, that helps us think more about structures of power and how that helps organize networks. Um, And I have a 2014 co-authored book with Raul Lejano and Helen Ingram on networks. Um, And we looked at narrative um, in particular and how a narrative analysis can really help understand how stories and narrative also are very much operating in terms of forming environmental networks that can eventually lead to action um, so I, I have this diversity of research projects as I've kind of kept these, this, these, this interest in networks and, um, very much science and society going, going along and had this opportunity to work with an international group of geographers on a project looking at art science collaboration. And that That project um, was over well over a decade ago, um, and I ended up following, I I had earlier as journal editor of Ecological Restoration begun to understand a little bit about the work of artists in ecological restoration. And with that research project subsequent to that, that work, I started to learn a lot more about the arts. Um, And the kind of different approaches. And so in a lot of ways, this, this book we, we're going to talk about today is kind of a geographer in conversation with the arts and, and, and ways in which I kind of leaned on it, relied on it for new ways of seeing and understanding what was going on around me. So that's my kind of summary of, of you know, how I describe myself and my work in the, the project that, you know, ended up getting me on the road toward writing this orphan spaces book. All right. Yeah, that's great. So let's kind of start out with some definitions because I think we've all encountered orphan space, but didn't necessarily have that word to describe it. So could you tell us, you know, what is orphan space, you know, examples of the kinds of spaces that you're thinking of. And then also, you know, why do you call it that? Why use that term to describe these spaces? Yes. Excellent questions. When I think of with orphan space actually refers to a huge diversity of kinds of spaces. Um, Many of them, the way geographers think about socially created spaces, a a great deal of diversity there because I'm thinking about street terraces, um, vacant lots, right of ways along highways and train tracks, drainages, stormwater basins, as well as brownfields. And the book in general is a kind of call to action to see and to acknowledge and ultimately to engage with what I call orphaned space, which is a huge amount of territory around us. Um, And it took me a long time to conceptualize these spaces and name them as orphaned. Um, I, I think in particular as a geographer, what I just described here is the product of so many different kinds of social processes. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I think lumping them can be quite distressing at first. 
but there was something that I could that I could not for a long time there was something about these spaces and I had been led into them by following environmental artists around who were kind of doing these very interesting multifaceted projects in spaces like these and I just found myself continually drawn and paying attention to essentially kind of disregarded, taken for granted space. And I wanted a way to begin to talk about it, to recognize it, that was both a combination of understanding the social processes that create that space, but then also recognize a kind of um, agency connectivity, if you will, and um, kind of uh, sovereignty of these spaces on their own. In other words, each one of them perhaps deserves recognition and um, acknowledgement. And then once that happens, what does that mean? What does that open up for us as we as we do that? Um, so in, in a lot of ways, what I try to do in the book is to talk about the process of orphaning. Um, I do have a section where I talk about how I came to the word orphaned, which um, really is useful because orphaning can refer to family. I think we often think about it in terms of human relationships, which isn't exactly wrong, right? Like I do want, I, I, I do think there's a um, element of belonging that, that we have as, as humans and as, as, as beings on this earth where there is a, a, a bunch of different kinds of connections that, that where family is not, um, you know, that's not off the table to consider. Um, but also orphaned in the sense that um, things are disconnected and that these spaces have to be maintained. And so it's that process of orphaning them as, sorry, the, the process of maintaining them as orphaned that I became very interested in. And then I began to understand ways in which there's the both mechanical manipulation, the physical manipulation of these spaces, which are actually filled, often filled with tremendous energy, but there's the physical manipulation to keep them isolated, which involves things like cementing, covering, you know, covering in asphalt, um, draining, fencing, um, surveilling with bright lights, um, and uh, mowing is another way. So there's all these ways where there's this, you know, eco we could call it ecological energy, but there's, it's not just eco, it's not just, um, it, it includes human and non-human, but there are things that will happen in these spaces that we police, that we keep from happening because these spaces have a job to do. So that's that kind of orphaning, orphaning process. And, and I also wanted to talk about how we basically just psychically disappear them. And this is also where I think things get pretty interesting because depending on who and what you are, your privilege can allow you to disappear this space. And so that that psychic or uh, disappearance or orphaning will happen because we take something for granted and we can just walk by it, across it, over it, and ignore it. It is just this thing providing a service, like providing us a little separation from the street, for example, or it's just a vacant lot waiting for something else to happen, or it's an area that's just holding pollution for us, um, uh, say an old brownfield or something like that. So all of this, we just, we can disappear, we take it for granted. Of course, what the alternative to that is, if you are uh, 
home, uh, a person without a house, for example, these spaces suddenly can become potential opportunities to, you know, to sleep for the night or, or find a, a place to sit for a while. Um, if you are a pollinator or a bee, sometimes these places have clover in them and other things. And so I became very interested in how it is that certain kinds of privilege allow us to disappear this space. And um, I wanted to take this moment to actually introduce the artist who really kind of catapulted me in this direction, um, Mira Laterman Ukeles, and I write about her in the um, in the first part of the book. And Mira Laterman Ukeles began her work in the '60s um, and established what she called maintenance art. And in a nutshell, what she allowed me to do was to begin to, to, to push back and resist, first of all, push back and resist this disappearance that we take for granted and recognize that an element of that is that much of this space that we create and the land that we dedicate as infrastructure is kind of in our service. It's taking care of us in, in various ways. And we live in a culture where that kind of, of care, support, and maintenance is routinely disappeared. And a lot of her work was looking at um, ways that people take care of people. And as such, there's this kind of hierarchy that diminishes the caretakers. Um, an example of Meryl's work includes uh, work that she did where she um, shook the hands of over 8,000 sanitation workers in New York City and said, thank you for keeping New York City alive. Uh, she did things like wrap um, garbage trucks in mirrors and have them kind of drive around reflecting back to, to crowds waiting to cross the street, just who was responsible for the, the contents of this truck. And eventually she became the artist in residence with the New York sanitation department and worked for years. Um, but she has a manifesto in which she wrote this out. And it, she says, she described it as coming out of an epiphany where, uh, she had kind of been in this artist on the edge of a great career one day. And then as a mother pushing a baby carriage down the street, she was just kind of culturally disappeared as a caretaker. And she that really opened her eyes and she started to think about the ways that our society um, really diminishes the, the work of caretakers. Um, and so there's a lot to be said about Mira Lederman Ukele's work. But for me, she just kept, she just kept, I, I kept being able to come back to her and finding orientation around why <laughs> it was okay for me to kind of continue have my attention pulled in these really co often completely nondescript places, just like a little a little piece of street terrace, <laughs> which in the beginning I was like, I'm starting to feel like a slightly crazy person. You know, I, I keep looking at this thing and thinking about it and I don't really know why and I don't know what to say about it. Um, so I think her work on maintenance art, and, and I guess the other thing too, is that as I, as I began to read people who were artists and read about their, their work and follow them around, I, I kind of also 
had my eyes opened about the way of knowing where when your when your attention is pulled to something repeatedly, even if you don't intellectually have something to say about it at first, that is a way of knowing. It is an intuition, perhaps, but it is a way of knowing that is valid, right? It's it, you can, you're you're allowed to have the space to come back to this over and over, and so those I, I think those those are a couple of the things that for me, Ukaylee's really helped kind of clarify, so I could I could um, start to say, okay, yeah, let's let's think about these spaces, let's think about them as what what kind of process creates them, um, and uh, and and you know then f- uh, from there what what that might, what might that open up in terms of new ways of engaging with them? So I just got to say, and this might be like, you know, old hat to people that are more plugged into the arts world, but just the idea that the New York City Sanitation Department has an artist in residence is just like, wow, that's, that's cool. Um, (laughs) It's actually a wonderful story because, um, you Kaylee's had, just produced one of her early works and um i there was a critic in the new york times that made some joke about it and i think she approached if i remember that i don't quite remember exactly the flow of communication but if i remember right she she sort of approached the um then head of the sanitation department who said how would you like to come be our our uh, artist in residence and at this point, um, the, such residencies are not that uncommon. There's a lot of examples um, that I'm encountering all the time where artists are starting to work m- with municipalities in different ways. But, you know, not not back in the 60s. I think that was sh- she was uh, she was unique then. Um, but for sure. Yeah, I think it led to a lot of pretty interesting things. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Yeah. So the the core of your book is these three case studies of projects in orphan space. And so could you tell us a bit about the case studies and how you chose to focus on these three cases? Sure. So the three case studies are um, actually some really nicely developed examples of where artists were supported in various ways, including supporting themselves um, through fundraising and grant writing in order to realize environmental art projects in um, different kinds of spaces in cities. And this, this part of the book comes directly out of that art science collaboration project that I did with the other geographers. So I had the support at that time to spend a couple of years. And I had known one of these artists previously and then continued um, after the project was over to stay in touch with them. So the benefit of that was that I got a longer term kind of picture about three different kinds of, of art science engagements in, in um, urban areas and 
a little bit of a sense of the amount of time that, uh, you know, it can take uh, to get different kinds of projects like these off the ground and, and running. And I do have to say, I feel like when I, 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 you know, as I'm describing these projects, I think people may recognize a lot of elements of this because um, with climate change and, um, you know, I think of continued conversations about things like environmental justice, we're doing a better job of, of having um, richer conversations about infrastructure. Um, but a lot of these projects, which began well over a decade ago, um, they, they were very much cutting edge. Um, that said, I, I think there's still, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot here that, um, that I think can contribute to current conversations. But the first, um, the first case study is looking at an abandoned gas station lot in Chicago. And the work of Francis Whitehead, who was then a professor at the School for the Art Institute of Chicago, and the work that she did, especially around phytoremediation, which is engaging with different plant species to clean up um, by, by more specifically to kind of dismantle polluting hydrocarbons that remain in soil as a result of the presence of a gas station and a gas tank. And I use her work also to tell what's actually a international story about what gas station and gas tank pollution so is in the soil um, and uh, the you know billions of dollars spent on trying to clean up the leaky gas station infrastructure um, as well as sort of many many people sick and kind of the uneven impacts of this kind of pollution. Um, but I, I was really amazed. And I think, you know, at, at the ubiquity of um, these little toxic sites, which are all around us, and because they are sort of underground, we tend not to think about them. But they are everywhere. And particularly in places where there's not high real estate development pressure, these, these sites can just sit forever as these little toxic kind of bombs. And one of the things that Francis wanted to do was to work with the city of Chicago and think about how can this little toxic, a little toxic site like this, which is a type of site, right? They're all over hundreds of them in Chicago, hundreds of them in, you know, Indianapolis, Boston, all, all, all kinds of, of every, every town and, and city has these little things. And so she, what she was trying to look at was the process of plants, different kinds of plants, cleaning it up. And, discovered along the way that um, a lot of research it remains undone about the kinds of plants that could potentially clean up after, um, you know, after this kind of pollution and especially the kind of plants we might like to have around us. And so she engaged with a soil scientist um, and uh, did a, a project that was essentially a research project trying to find out what kinds of horticultural plants, so plants that you and I might like to have around um, would also do the work of dismantling hydrocarbons. And she designed this um, kind of big, beautiful statement. Um, it was, uh, you know, it was um, both kind of entertainment for the neighborhood, but also very much generating information that nobody had really looked at before in collaboration with this, this scientist about what kinds of plants actually could be a low cost and 
um, really multiply beneficial way to clean up soil pollution. So I think she offers all kinds of interesting ways that people kind of reckon with the cultural heritage that is the gas station transportation industry in the United States. Um, and in particular, how um, the kinds of tools, when you when you take a fresh look at the science and the scientific research, the kinds of tools that, that could be available to help communities reapproach this problem. Um, so that's the first case study. Um, the second one had to do with a project called Water Wash that Lillian Ball, a New York-based artist, pursued. And um, Lillian had taught herself about ways that wetland plants, um, as well as other kinds of um, manipulations of the landscape, can help do something about what is the largest source of pollution in Long Island Sound and is a problem everywhere, but it's the little tiny bits of runoff that that go into rivers and streams and, you know, the ocean and um, pollute it with uh, stuff that's running off of streets and, um, and uh, other places, roofs and stuff that, that's sort of going directly into waterways un, um, and cleaned. And so she, uh, she engaged with plant scientists as well as a private landowner along the Bronx River. She was initially invited to work in a public space, but realizing that private land ownership was actually, you know, a really important kind of place where decisions get made all the time that can influence this runoff. Uh, she engaged um, the owners of what was then ABC Carpet. Um, and worked with them to install essentially a wetland, but it is also very much a kind of public engagement space. Um, she worked with a contractor to develop a kind of recycled permeable pavement that allows runoff rain to filter down through it and cleans it as it goes. Um, and the result is a kind of performance in this um, super gritty part of the Bronx that uh, has where the river's really kind of been disappeared by big warehouses and other things. Um, and she helped open that space up to visitors and created this kind of winding, sparkly path with all kinds of different um, plants installed. And she worked with uh, Rocking the Boat, which is a really nifty nonprofit working with youth in the area and um, just thought a lot about how that one particular place could be activated through a whole variety of relationships, including involving wetland plants that sort of hadn't anybody expected to work there, but very much came out of her own experience. Um, and the other thing that I uh, sort of the um, corollary to the first case study talking about the, the history of gas stations, that story really helps elucidate the long, the, the kind of ongoing fight for environmental justice um, in the Bronx and in, in that area and kind of trying to understand that that part of the Bronx is actually sort of created and constrained by larger orphaning processes. So um, the fact that it really continues to take a whole lot of waste from the rest of the, the boroughs um, and is is where a lot of waste management and trucking and other things happen is just one way in which uh, that that particular kind of geographical space 
um, is orphaned and, it, you know, as it continues to be a kind of maintenance space handling waste from the rest of the city. So that's the second um, case study. And then the third one is based on the Fargo project in Fargo, North Dakota, um, or World Garden Commons, as they're calling it now, but a really impressive project that got a lot of money eventually from the Kresge Foundation and other um, sources because it uh, it um, kind of successfully created a way for all sorts of different community members in Fargo to re-envision this giant stormwater basin in a, a bunch of really different ways. And that was a fascinating project because it sort of unearthed a couple of very different fears in the community. And the um, maybe to lay the landscape really quickly, um, the Red River, which runs right through the middle of Fargo, unlike most Midwestern rivers, runs north. And because of that, it's susceptible to springtime flooding. And in addition, that landscape there as an old lake bed is just incredibly flat. So draining it is hard work. And if you go to Google Maps and look from way up high, you can actually see how all of the streams and rivers, they look like ribbon candy. It's just kind of tortured back and forth and back and forth because they're trying to work their way, you know, down through the sediments to, to find a way downstream. And so water management there, it's just always been a great big deal. Um, and people are kind of on high alert about stormwater. So even in the summertime, you know, you'll get these like really hefty rain storms and water just fills the spaces, fills, fills what's there very quickly and has this way of overflowing and flooding. And so storm water management has resulted in a huge amount of very impressive infrastructure. And it includes the digging of these giant basins, as well as a whole bunch of ditches and pipes and pumps, which help push the water downstream, get it into the river as fast as possible. And as Fargo has continued to develop, especially as the kind of Western part of the state has boomed with fracking and other things, um, you know, Fargo has grown and as well. And so there's all this development and um, a need to build more of these giant basins. And um, the one where the Fargo project project happens is 18 acres. And in general, the city kind of realized they had a little bit of a problem because they were mowing these vast areas and they just sort of sat there otherwise and filled with trash, a little bit of stinky water at the bottom. But um, in many places they were an eyesore and they really disconnected the, the kind of social fabric, if you will. Um, so that's kind of the, the challenge that was laid out for Jackie Bruckner, who was a, also a New York-based artist and a very good friend of someone who was a very good friend of the then mayor in Fargo. So conversations happened and eventually Jackie was um, invited to come in and she uh, started working with this team of Fargo-based artists to think about this, you know, these stormwater basins. And one of the things that the project, as they they did their work going around and speaking to people and having conversations with all different kinds of folks was both a kind of hyper concern and fear over any kind of stormwater, right? Like people, I remember an engineer saying, you know, even little bits in the backyard can just send people really, really worried. Like they don't want to see it because 
um, the, when the, when the flooding has happened, it's, it's actually kind of terrifying. And, um, if you look back, um, over the decades and just Google it, there's these dramatic stories of sandbagging and all hands on deck kind of a thing to, to keep the river from overflowing and inundating everybody's homes. So that history, which has gone on for as long as that sort of, um, white people have made this town here, um, is part of why people are nervous. Um, but I, you know, I, I think in some ways it was sort of pushing the question of like, well, you know, why are they potentially messing with these stormwater basins at all by inviting an artist in? And that was what came out of that process, which was also fascinating, is, is that Fargo actually has more flowing into it than water. And that in part because of the work of the Lutheran Social Services has something like 10 percent. Um, people from other places, m- most of them refugees. So Lutheran Social Services has a long-term contract with the government, um, which kind of disappeared during the Trump years, but I think is being reestablished now and has sort of long provided a service trying to support people from war-torn regions t- who, who have to leave to find a new place to settle. And so it turns out that the stormwater basin they were working around was surrounded by people living in apartments who are brand new. And that one of the things that came out of community conversations was that the, was the, was the needs of those people, and the awareness of the city that these folks were being kind of um, underserved and ignored in really important ways, and the basin could potentially be a place that celebrated and welcomed this diversity of people. And so there were a series of community workshops and then ongoing programming, which led to all kinds of different things going on in this one particular basin called the Fargo Project. So um, that included things like a, a welcome week where there was lots of kind of cultural um, ac- related activities and food to um, just a, a really um, more support for community gardens where people had the space to grow food from, you know, uh, food appropriate to, to where they were from. Um, so it's, it's, uh, kind of complicated. There's a lot of different ways that the city, um, has realized these things. And there is a definitely certain kinds of infrastructure in there. So there's a, a playground at the bottom of this, um, and, a um, kind of installed wetland prairie area and things like that, that the, um, hydrological engineers actually didn't particularly know could happen um, because nobody had ever tried it before. And they certainly were not previously to this artist doing the work. They were not encouraged to kind of to, to look at it. As I say, people just sort of, you know, why, why mess with this infrastructure when it's so important to keeping things safe? But with the artist on board and Jackie had worked in many places around the world and talked to me a lot about the kind of language that it took to create a comfort zone where, you know, engineers are like, okay, she knows, she knows, she understands the challenges here and how important this is. Um, But at the same time, also acknowledging that a kind of large scale approach to solving problems can, can um, often really be problematic in other ways, particularly you know, as I said, interrupting the kind of social connectivity and flow. And so they were open to trying new things. And that included not just sort of a, a, a better understanding of the diversity of plants, right? It's not just Kentucky bluegrass that can survive in this basin, but that you can have things like 
play structures, natural play structures that people can use when the basin isn't full of water. Um, and, um, and also they took cement out of this very straight drainage channel and, um, work to kind of create a, a meandering stream. And so there's this nice story that I heard a number of times I mentioned in the book called, in, um, in, they, they called it in search of a meander, but, um, you know, it's like, what, what can possibly happen here when you take the cement out of one of these drainage things? And, you know, nobody knew. So, um, the art science collaboration in this last case study really had to do with Jackie and other artists working with city engineers of different kinds and really thinking about, well, how can stormwater management happen, you know, as it needs to. And at the same time, we can really accommodate a lot of other ways to welcome people and have, you know, all kinds of other relationships with different plants and different animals. Yeah. And it was the Fargo project, right? It's where the photo on the cover comes from, um, which like when I first saw this photo and so to describe it for our audio listeners, you've got uh, a person who's wearing like a purple, like headscarf, uh, jumping through the air and behind them, you've got this embankment that's got some plants on it and kind of a wall made out of these vertical posts. And then there's some sky uh, with clouds behind that. And like when I first saw this photo, I was like, okay, that's a photo of a person, you know, in one of these spaces. But then just having this book sitting on my desk for a while, I would just look at this and like, I can feel what it must feel like to be in that, that space. And it's like this, this photo is like drawing me in, uh, on the cover of your book. I love that. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. The cover took me a while to settle on. Um, but I just felt like their kind of dynamism of this girl leaping through the air. Um, you know, it, it just displays sort of the, the potential and the energy of, you know, someone really engaging in this space that was otherwise, I mean, it was empty. There was nothing going on in it, except at the edges, occasionally kids would like sled down during the winter, kids would slide down one of the, uh, one of the sides of the, of the basin because it was, it was near the YMCA, but yeah, just sat empty. And, and, and now, you know, um, it's, it's a, a place that welcomes all different kinds of people. Um, and, uh, she has muddy feet too, which, um, I think is kind of great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's so much more I could ask you about this book, but you know, I want to leave a little for people to discover on their own if they pick it up for themselves. Uh, so, I want to now give you an opportunity to give like a, a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing the book. Oh, thank you for that. Yes. Um, I am of course, seriously indebted to Francis Whitehead, to Lillian Ball and to Jackie Bruckner, who's actually no longer with us because of cancer, but all three of them, gave so much time and energy and so generously. Um, and, and, uh, they, they, they taught me a lot as an academic geographer about other ways of knowing and seeing. And I'm, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful to, to them as well as to Nicole Crutchfield, who is also based in Fargo and, um, was just this in, incredibly welcoming person. Um, 
so Sally Marston and Deborah Dixon headed up the, um, their geographers who headed up the, um, the art science collaboration project that I was part of, um, which really launched this whole thing and was a seriously visionary, interesting way um, to start to think about the role, the broader role of arts in society, and in particular for me, environmental issues. So um, those, I, I am, I am really grateful for that for that opportunity, and I'm I'm still milking it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I could I could go on. Um, I would I, I guess I would also mention my mother Helen Ingram because she was a she helped um, me keep going on this. It took me over a decade to get this thing out, um, and she's she's a co-author on an earlier book. And my mom and I have actually been kind of co-authors on a number of things. And I've, I've, I've really enjoyed, um, I know that there are some other people who, um, have produced academic scholarship with their parents and, um, it's just been a great kind of dimension to our relationship. So I'm very grateful to her as well. All right. So then our final question as always is what are you working on next? What am I working on next? Yes. Um, I'm, I'm trying to, keep my focus and energy on this this project um in some ways maybe to to realize some other things that I didn't quite do but it's hard because I keep also wanting to do something else and something something uh different I don't I don't think I'm kind of done with landscapes if you will um and I have been thinking about how the institution of public land is really an interesting uh, question. I grew up in the West, spent a ton of time crashing around wilderness areas following my father, Jeff Ingram, who worked with David Brower back in the early days of the Sierra Club. And, um, you know, my intersection with wilderness and public land is, is really part of my own, you know, very much part of my own formation. Um, and I have this, you know, I'm just very interested in what's going on with public, I mean, public institutions in general right now are kind of besieged. And at the same time, there are these really exciting conversations going on, for example, that ways we're trying to acknowledge land theft and genocide of indigenous people and think about new ways of co-managing public lands, for example, as a public possible avenue for reparations. I, and I think there are, are questions about climate change too. So I'm sort of interested in thinking about my own personal experience um, there and um, uh, as a way to maybe grapple with what's going on with pub the institution of public land right now. So that's very much sort of in nebulous at this point, but I have um, a second project that's um, I'm kind of excited about too, which is around citizen science and uh, working with farmers and looking at ways that uh, we talk about something like soil health um, and urban agriculture, both of which are kind of receiving um, support and money from various sources now, but can, how can those things um, actually be uh, useful for actually supporting more diverse ag uh, agriculture and food production in Wisconsin? All right. Well, that all sounds really exciting. And if it any, any of that turns into a book, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. Well, thank you, Stentor. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity. It's, um, it's been nice. All right. 
This has been a conversation with Maril Ingram, author of Loving Orphaned Space, The Art and Science of Belonging to Earth, published this year by Temple University Press.